Please turn with me in your Bibles back to the first passage that we read together in the prophecy of Isaiah. We come in our exposition of this book to, verse, uh, to chapters 15 and 16, two of which encompass the burden or word to Moab. Isaiah 15 and 16, it opens the burden of Moab because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. Because in the night, Kerr of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. We recognize, I hope, that every divine mercy is entirely undeserved. There is no mercy ever received among men from God, for which they were owed it, for which they had paid for it. Mercies are undeserved, all of them. So it is God condescending when he extends the offers of mercy uh, to poor helpless sinners like ourselves. But that, knowing that, exacerbates the sheer wickedness of forsaking mercies. The Bible warns us about forsaking our own mercies. Rebuffing the overtures of mercy that come from the Lord. This is solemn, solemn business to contemplate and to think about. And it lies behind part of what we find here in the word that God gives to Moab. Now we need to orient ourselves a little as we turn from Babylon in the last couple of chapters now to God's prophetic word to Moab and just Remind ourselves uh, where we are, who this is, and so on. So children, you'll remember, I hope, that Moab and Ammon were the descendants of who? They were the descendants of Lot, who was related to Abraham. So the Moabites and the Ammonites are the lineage, the offspring, that are traced back to Lot who was close kin uh, to Abraham. And we can add to that Edom, who is another neighbor of the two of them. And Edom and the Edomites are descendants of Esau. So Esau, of course, uh, comes from Abraham's own loins. You have Isaac and then Jacob and Esau, the sons of, of Isaac. So the Edomites are the descendants of of Esau. So children, if you're thinking in terms of your biblical geography, right, you have Mediterranean Sea and then you have Israel that's positioned uh, right uh, along the sea. And you have, of course, the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. And then you have uh, the Jordan River, which runs down into the, the Dead Sea. And on the far side, east side, initially you had three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh who had, line, who had um, uh, land, uh, part of their allotment, on, on the east side of the Jordan River. So I want you to think now. There's the way that I taught myself this, I'll teach to you, uh, a little acronym. So if you're thinking along the eastern border of Israel, so on the eastern side of, of Israel, the, the lineup of the nations there form the word same, S-A-M-E. 
S-A-M-E. So if you start at the very north, like way up north, you have Syria. We hear a lot about them. Then you come down alongside Israel, and you have A for Ammonites. That's one of the descendants of Lot. Below them, you have the Moabites, which are descendants of Lot. And then far to the south below them are the Edomites, right? So you have S-A-M-E. And so this is where we are. We're kind of like southeast of, of Israel, and we're talking about uh, the Moabite people. And of course, the borders uh, are a bit fluid um, over the years. There's David, of course, conquers the, the Moabites at one point, and then they're uh, freed up at another point, and then the ten tribes go into exile, and they take some of the property that had belonged to Reuben, and so there's some fluctuation there that you see there, but that's, that's where we are. So we're talking about descendants of those who are close kin to God's people, which is why, if you go back to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, I believe, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Lord, Jehovah, says that the uh, Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites were to be left un unmolested initially. But alas, these nations ended up pro proving hostile to Israel. And so they begin to beat the drums of war and create great havoc. And so throughout the history of the remaining you know, time of Israel, they're a constant nuisance and there's difficulty and warfare and hostility uh, from, from them. But that gives you a position and kind of in your mind where they are and a reminder of who they are. Both history and the Bible is important for understanding prophecy and geography. Both of these things help illuminate. We're not just reading words that we're not have any placement for. We're, we're rooting them into what Scripture said. Furthermore, um, this isn't the last word to Moab. So there's an even fuller uh, prophecy to Moab in the days of Jeremiah, which come after Isaiah. And in Jeremiah 48, we have an even fuller treatment of what the Lord says to and about uh, the Moabites. And so we turn then to this section, uh, Isaiah 15 and, and 16. And really, in some ways, the prophecy works backwards in one way. The Lord begins with the end. He begins in chapter 15 by describing the coming desolation, the utter destruction that is going to take place uh, with, with Moab. And then in chapter 16, he provides us with some of the reasons for all of this. We say backwards, but not really, as we'll see more when we come to the second point. The Lord is giving them a forewarning in the description that's, that's, that's spelled out in chapter 15, to which they could have given heed. So the title of our sermon is Pride Rejecting Mercy, which is the note that we opened with a moment ago. We're going to look at three things. First of all, the consequences of sin, and this is really chapter 15, verses 1 to 9, the consequences of sin, the burden of Moab, because in the night R of Moab is laid waste, brought to silence, because the, in the night Kerr of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. These two cities, R and Kerr, are two of the capital or principal cities of, of Moab, right? R is, is kind of north-central, north of center, and Kerr is south of, of, of center, but two significant places. You might think New York City and uh, L.A., right? Those aren't 
north and south of Sinter, but two prominent cities kind of on either side of, of the country. And what's described is something that comes as a surprise, right? It comes in the night, a surprise. In the midst of all of their prosperity, their things are going fairly well. There's, st- there's some measure of stability and growth and, and uh, prosperity that, that Moabites are enjoying. And so who would have thought that in that particular context, that as it were, in the blink of an eye, judgment would fall upon them. But that's exactly what's happening. There's surprise in the midst of this prosperity. Sudden, colossal, absolute destruction is going to fall. The language brought to silence. Um, Margin says cut off. It could also be translated are undone. Right? They're unwound. They're unraveled. They're taken apart. They are they're, they're cut down, as it were. So there's, they're put into the grave, right? The grave is silenced. They're buried. They're left with, with nothing. It describes in verse 2, he's gone up to uh, Bajith and to Daibon. Daibon, right, the high places to weep. These are significant places, important religiously for Moab. So religious centers uh, in which they, the, the, they're the focus of the worship of their false gods took place and so on. And yet they go up to these places which they would think of as sanctuaries, as they would think of as places of safety and strongholds and so on, and all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. And this is a description of public humiliation, right? It's their their hair has been cut off, their beards have been cut off, they've been publicly humiliated for all to see. That's what's coming. We're told that in their streets, they're covered in sackcloth, they're humbled. There's this abundant weeping, you know, just a deluge of, uh, of cries and tears. Heshban shall cry and so on. And then in verses 5 and 6, they're fleeing, right? They're fugitives that flee. And they're, they're weeping as they go. <clears throat> they're, they're, they're under the boot of this colossal destruction. What do they do? All they can do is carry off what they can. So in verses five, uh, 7, 8, and 9, that's precisely what they do. They've, the things that they've gotten, they've laid up, they, they, they pack it and tr- try to run with it as best as they can. Right? The description is like a bird that's been, that has been you know, chased out of its nest. They're like, the women are like little birds that have flown from the nest and are flying off, scattering in, in every direction, howling uh, as they as they go. And yet the description of all of this, which is devastation, destruction, the loss of everything, public humiliation to the world, uh, stripped of all the resources that they've been given. And then you come to verse 9, and the Lord says, the waters of Daimon, which are probably uh, a play on the word Daimon, right, switched, called Daimon, in connection with being full of blood. He says, so the waters, which are the place that gives all of the lush grass for their, their cattle and their lambs, which they're known for, and all the abundance of their crops, and so on. He says, I'm going to fill that with blood, for I will bring more upon Diamond. So you're at the end of chapter 15, and if you're not just reading over it thoughtlessly, you're trying to take on board and, and imagine, you know, being living through it, being privy to all of this yourself. You know, you're, you're, you're breathless, and then the Lord comes in verse 9, and he says, and that's not all. There's going to be additional things. There's even more that I'm going to bring 
upon them, lions upon him that escape it. So you hauled off all your stuff, prosperity, you tried to you know, keep what you could, and the Lord's going to hound you down with, with lions so that you're overtaken in, in flight, as it were. And you turn to that passage I referenced in, in Jeremiah chapter 48, in verse 26, uh, he says, the Lord says this, make ye him drunken. For he magnified himself against the Lord. Moab also shall wallow in his vomit, and he also shall be in derision. The patience of God, who is long-suffering and slow to anger and deals in gentleness, his patience has run out. Their defiance, their dishonor, their rebellion against the Lord has come to an end. And the hammer is falling. The hammer of justice is falling upon them. What does this leave us with? It leaves us with the fact that defying God brings in its wake always overwhelming grief. Oh, that we could be persuaded of this, right? Not just notionally, not just, you know, intellectually acknowledging it to be so. You know, if we defy God, dishonor God, rebel against God, disobey God, turn from God, refuse to bow before the Lord, it's going to bring overwhelming grief in its wake. Not just affirming that, but actually coming under the full persuasion and power of it. Oh, that those who were unconverted here, young and old alike this afternoon, could be brought under the power of these truths, that to, to, to disregard the Lord, to ignore him, to refuse to come to him, to, to walk in unbelief, to, to walk in self-interest and disobedience is not going to yield blessing. You're not going to benefit. You're not going to prosper under such a condition. It brings overwhelming grief. In this life, to a degree, and of course, overwhelmingly, in the destruction and desolation that comes in the next life. But we need this worked and, 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 and massaged into our minds and hearts that disobedience and defiance of God brings grief, brings devastation with it. You think of how we, we sing of this in reference to Moab in two places. One, first place is in Psalm 60. And uh, verse 8, where the Lord is, has said that uh, he's given a banner to those that fear him and that his beloved are going to be delivered and so on. And then he goes on to say that he's spoken in his holiness. And then he marches through, I'll divide Shechem, I'll mete out the valley of Sukkoth, Gilead is mine, Manasseh mine, Ephraim also is the strength of my head, Judah is my lawgiver, Moab is my washpot. Right? The Lord laying claim. Over Edom will I cast my shoe. Philistia triumph thou because of me. And so on. The Lord laying claim even to, to, to Moab. So we see the consequences of sin, which in a word is misery. Chapter 15 is a depiction, a vivid depiction of misery. But then secondly, mercy held forth. Mercy held forth. So we turn to chapter 16. And here we're looking at verses 1 to 5. Mercy held forth. The Lord reveals and speaks words of pity to them. In fact, you have in verse 5, and in mercy, right? That word is, some of you will remember, we've mentioned it many times in the Hebrew, chesed, 
right? It's the word for covenant faithfulness, covenant love, loving kindness, mercy, tender mercies. It can be translated in all sorts of, of different ways. It's the word that we sing over and over and over and over and over again in Psalm 136. His chesed endureth forever, right? His mercy endureth for forever. And so the Lord expresses some pity here. So you have in chapter 15 this description of overwhelming grief, and, and yet the warning in chapter 15 is still future. He's not describing what God has done with Moab. He's describing what he will do with, with Moab. And so it's still future at the time, that is, of Isaiah's prophecy, of his, of his writing. If anything, the ten tribes in the north are at a lower point than Moab is at this, at this particular juncture. But the fact that it is a warning that is still future means that there is a window for repentance. The warning provides a window for, for repentance. And so in verse 1 he says, Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness under the mount of the daughter of Zion. Right? It's interesting because the Hebrew word, this is an unusual word for lamb that's used here. And what's interesting is that this is the exact same word that is used in reference to Moab in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 4, where it says, And Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with wool. And so what's, this is, I think, evidently, obviously, a reference to tribute previously paid. So, in, in, in essence, the Lord is saying to, to Moab, do as you've done in the past. Right? You, you paid this tribute of 100,000 uh, lambs to the king of Israel in, in, in that case. And the Lord is saying, return, like Misha, your king. Return and pay it to Judah. Pay it to the, the mount of the daughter of, of Zion. In other words, it's saying, recognize the king. Recognize the divine king that God has appointed in, in Jerusalem. Recognize it. Pay tribute. What's, what's the case with Judah right now? Judah is in, is in a serious world of hurt. Judah is in a weakened condition. Judah is... Is, is getting hammered herself, right? She's being scattered to the winds. And the Lord is saying, in her weakness, Moab, send the lamb. Pay your tribute, as it were. Give your, lend your support to the kingdom of Jehovah in this world. And it goes on. And it basically says, give shelter in order that you might get shelter. He says... For it shall be that the wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast, bury not him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the executioner is in an end, the spoiler ceases, the oppressor are consumed out of the land. What's happening? He's saying, here's Judah, and they're on the run. And they're in great dilemma. 
And he's saying, Moab, open the doors and take them as sojourners among you, not permanent residents that are now just going to become Moabites. Allow them to be to take shelter under, under your wing. Pity, in other words, God's people. Pity God's cause and let them sojourn among you. And then it goes on, doesn't it? And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment, hastening righteousness. Here you have the throne, right? That's, it's called the throne, right? This is the throne in Jerusalem, which is reflective of the throne of Emmanuel. It represents the throne of Jehovah, the throne of Emmanuel, of God with us. Indeed, the throne in Jerusalem points to the heavenly throne, the one that's referenced earlier in, in Isaiah chapter 6. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Right? It reflects, it points to that heavenly throne, God's own reign in the earth. And of course, this reference to to the throne is, is reinforced all throughout the prophets, the prophetic literature. It's reinforced all throughout the Psalms as well, the references to the divine throne of God. In other words, he's saying, you look with pity upon my people. You take interest in my cause. You give tribute and support. You let them come and sojourn among you because you, Moab, yourself need redemption. I am going to establish my throne ultimately in the person and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself shall sit upon it, and he will dwell seeking judgment and, and righteousness. The fact is, happy, happy, happy would Moab, Moab have been if they had returned under one greater than Solomon, under one greater than the kings that had preceded if they had brought themselves under the reign of Jehovah himself, if they had come and taken refuge themselves under the one who is greater than Solomon and all others, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they, they would not. And it's not overwhelmingly surprising to us. It should surprise us. It's not all that surprising. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ came to his own and they would not receive him. So that Christ Jesus himself stands, as it were, over Jerusalem weeping. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I would have gathered you as chicks under my wing and ye would not. And so here they are how happy they would have been to have heeded the word of the Lord, to have used the space that God had given them, the warning he had brought to them in order to motivate them to turn to the Lord in repentance. You say, well, Pastor, I mean, is that really possible? I mean, is it, is it possible for the Moabites to do that? Is it possible for the Moabites to be recipients of God's saving grace, to receive the blessings of the covenant and all of these things? Are they really able to be recipients of that sort of thing? And the answer is yes. You say, well, how do you know? Easy. 
because these kings in Judah descend from a Moabite. Right? Through the line of David, back to Ruth. And Ruth left Moab. And she said to Naomi, let your God be my God. And it's interesting because the language here about make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday and so on. You go back to the book of Ruth. And here's this Moabitess woman. And she's coming to Jehovah. And here's how it's described. Boaz says, Ruth 2, verse 12, The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord, of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Here is a Moabite, Moabites, who has taken refuge under the wing of Jehovah, and who has found, who has been found to be a recipient of mercy. Indeed, who was given the privilege of, of actually standing in the line to the great king, David, great king of Israel, who stood in line to the promised seed, the greatest king, David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when you open your New Testament scriptures, there she is, listed in the, 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 the genealogy that is, that is provided there. What's the point? The point is that there is mercy that is being held forth here. And you, you notice it elsewhere as well in this, this section. The language of chapter 15, verse 5, My heart shall cry out for Moab. The Lord is pronouncing divine judgment against them. And yet, my heart shall cry out for Moab. His refuge, refuge his um, refugees shall flee out of Zor a heifer of three years, and so on. Then you go to chapter 16, and there you have in verse 11, wherefore my bowels shall sound like a harp for Moab, and my inward parts for a kur haresh. Right, here, is the, here is the Lord revealing himself. And he, it's the Lord is, is, is revealing himself as one who is not untouched by the ruin not hardened, as it were, against the desolation that they are going to face. And it, it's what we find elsewhere in the prophets, isn't it? It's what we find in Ezekiel when the Lord comes to his people and he says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. Turn ye, turn ye. Why will ye die, O house of Israel? Turn and live. The Lord as it were, coming with overtures and, and pleas for his people to turn from their wickedness, their sin, which leads to grief and misery and ultimately destruction, to turn to him for life and light. And so the Lord's coming and he's saying to Moab, take heed, listen, repent. God has patience. God is slow to anger. God is gracious in dealing with, with inexcusable sinners. but we can forsake our own mercies. And when we do, we are left with none. We forsake our mercies. We get none. 
Here, mercy is held forth. My friends, the scenery has changed dramatically. Things look very different now than they did in, in Isaiah's day. But at this point and others, they are very similar. The Lord comes to us in the Holy Scriptures, and he tells you of the judgment to come. And he spells it out. He spells out the weeping and wailing and gnashing teeth. He speaks about, he speaks about eternal fire. He speaks about outer darkness. He describes the, 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 the verdict, depart ye into everlasting torment. The Lord gives us all of the warnings. He says, the, he says that he's going to come as the judge of all the earth, that all will be arraigned before him, that he will render a, a true verdict, and that in that verdict, those who are outside of Christ, who, 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 who have held fast to unbelief, who have walked in disobedience, who are ignorant of Christ and of his gospel, shall surely, absolutely, certainly, irrecoverably be damned for eternity. We have all of that laid out for us clear as crystal in the Holy Scriptures. He says, this is what's coming, indeed will come. And yet he gives us that declaration of warning, which is still future. Because like with Moab, he leaves a window for repentance in the preaching of the gospel. And he is, he is coming in his word again and again and again with overtures of mercy. And saying to you, my friend, to you, the Lord is saying, turn ye, turn ye. Why will ye die? Why will you, in pig-headed fashion, trample underfoot the overtures of mercy that are extended to you from God in order that you might destroy yourself in everlasting torments. What idiocy, what folly, what irrationality, what stupidity is this? The Lord is coming and he's saying, I've told you, this is most certainly the judgment that is coming. And the Lord says, turn, repent, Receive mercy. Come under my wing. Come under the shadow of the Almighty. Come to take refuge in the Savior. There is a king, and he is, his throne shall be established, and he is going to reign with righteousness, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, and he will reign forever and ever, and will have all of the glory in all of the earth and in all of heavens and all of the universe. He will sit upon the throne of David as the Lord of David and as the Lord of all. To forsake your own mercies is to be left with none. For Moab, by and large, that's exactly what happened. She stiff-armed, turned her face away from, set her back, to all that the Lord declared to her and went headlong into her destruction. But here you see mercy held out, mercy held forth. My friends, let us hear it. Let it ring in our ears so that we might hear the joyful sound and rally under the trumpet of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, we have the punishment of pride 
Thirdly, we have the punishment of pride. The rest of chapter 16, verse 6, through to the end at verse 14. So following on the mercy that's been held forth, we're told the root problem, we have heard of the pride of Moab. And look how it's described six ways in, in, in verse 6 alone. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies or strength shall not be so. The Lord gives us the root problem. He tells us, here's where the trouble lies. Pride, arrogance. Pride is the downfall of Moab. So different, isn't it, from the Lord's people? How are the Christians, how is the Christian described? How is the believer described? So often, poor and needy. Broken and contrite heart. Humbled spirit. Right? These, this is the language. Those who see the glory, the grandeur, the greatness of God and the wonder of his gospel are brought low in their own eyes, in their own mind, in their own hearts, in themselves. They're brought to humility to take the place that belongs to them. Like a worm, like Jacob, or like those who are laid in the dust to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But Moab would not. She lifted herself up. And it is in the lifting of herself up that she experiences her downfall. It's because she went up that she's crashed and dashed upon, upon the ground. It's pride that is fed by worldly ease. Not all of which is not all the things described are, are, are sinful things in themselves. But it was pride that fed upon worldly ease that became a snare to, to her. And so it, it speaks about how the foundations, they're going to mourn over the foundations. Verse 8, for the fields of Heshbon languish, the vine of Sibma, the lords of the heathen have broken down, the principal plants thereof, they are come even unto Jazer. They wandered through the wilderness, their branches are stretched out, they are gone over the sea. And so here's this picture of opulence and bounty and blessing and productivity and prosperity and all of that. And yet they've sought to take refuge in that. They've thought, well, we've, we've made these things by our hands. We can do it. We can make ourselves great. And we are great and we'll remain great by, our, by the strength of our own arm. And the Lord is saying, no. He's saying, instead, all of this has become a snare to you. It's going to be broken down. It's going to be demolished. When it says the lords of the heathen have broken down the principal plants thereof, you know, the idea, it's used elsewhere in the Hebrew Old Testament for, like, drunken. They've been, been drunk on it. They're staggering. They're, they're, they're beside themselves with it. Here's the Lord saying, all of that fruitfulness, the fruitful field, all of that, well, now it will be a place where you bewail with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibma. What you've previously rejoiced over and brought so much happiness to you and you thought this was it, everything is great. The summer fruits came, the harvest has come and all of that. 
He says, no, it'll be a place of weeping. Gladness is taken away. Joy taken away out of the plentiful field. No more singing in the vineyards. No more shouting. Because I have made the vintage shouting to cease. Where are we? We're full circle, aren't we? We're back to the reality of the grief and misery that comes in the wake of sin. This is the consequence. There is punishment for pride. And it is pride that refuses to bow before the Lord's call to mercy. Right? It is pride that says, I'm good enough. I'm fine. I'm, I've, I, I feel settled. I'm secure. I'm happy with my life. I, you know, I feel like it may not be so crass as to say, well, I'm a good person and therefore that's enough. Maybe that crass. You may go so low as to think to yourself, I'm a good person. I do morally upright things. I've been charitable. I've done this, that, and the other thing. And therefore, I am, I don't need to repent. I don't need to believe. I don't need to come to Christ in terms of the gospel. I'm going to heaven on my own, on my own two cents. Well, that's, that's a train wreck. We may not even be that foolish as to say something that foolish. But think to ourselves, we're, we're not concerned about our soul, about eternity, about the judgment to come, about our sin, about the Savior, about the significance of the cross. We're just not concerned about these things. That is pride. It is pride whenever we do not receive the word of God, whenever we do not bow before it and bow under it, when we do not, when we do not conform ourselves and comply with it. It's pride. And pride is bringing the absolute desolation to, to Moab. In verse 12, And it shall come to pass, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. Right? Okay, we're going to get religious. But it's not biblical religion. It's not God's religion. It's not the true religion. And so we're going we're gonna to get serious about religion. We're going up into the high place. And this language of them wearying themselves, right? They're being worn out in all of their spiritual activity and devotion and so on. They're, they're exhausting themselves in false religion. It's the same picture that you have in the days of Elijah. When they go up to Mount Carmel, and there the prophets of Baal wear themselves out. They are wearied. Right? They're crying out and bewailing and screaming and pleading for the water to come. They start gashing themselves and cutting themselves wide open. They're in dead earnest. They're wearying themselves to no avail. Not a drop of water falls from the sky. Elijah prays to the living and true God and boom. Downpour fills the trenches and overflows them, and so on and so forth. This is the picture. So the Lord says, no, no. The judgment that's coming is speedy. I've declared mercy. I have been patient. I have extended privileges, etc. I've given you revelation. I've given you a word from heaven. But now it's going to fall quickly. Verse 14, now the Lord hath spoken, saying, within three years, within three years, the glory of Moab shall be condemned. With all that great multitude and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. The Lord says, now 
Now it's coming quickly. I've spoken to you. I've given my word to you. I've declared the truth to you. I've called you to myself. I've called you to repentance and so on. And the clock will not tick much longer. He marks the time, three years. He says in verse 13, but this is the word the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time. Think to yourself, since what time? It's hard to tell for, for absolute certain. I'm inclined to think since the time of Balaam. The Lord pro prophesied through Balaam all the way to the days at present here of, of Isaiah. Their worship will be of no avail. They who thought themselves great, thought themselves as a great multitude, are going to be reduced to a very small and feeble remnant. And guess what? This is exactly what happened. This is precisely what happened. The Lord decimated Moab and reduced them to the utter insignificance. A handful. Now, a hundred years from now, they begin to repopulate and they begin to resurface again. After that, that's true. And they begin to come back. But there was a period there when there was almost nothing left. What the Lord said is what the Lord did. What the Lord prophesied is what in fact came through, the punishment of pride. And so it will be in the last day. Right? There will be many even who will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in thy name? We've done all these religious things. We have some sort of attachment to you. you know, we've sought to do good things and so on and so forth. And the Lord's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's a reality. There are going to be many on the last day to their utter shock Amazement, astonishment. We're going to discover that their lack of gospel repentance, their lack of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their lack of the fruit of faith and obedience and devotion to him is going to leave them in the wake of judgment. And all of their pride that would not bow, that would not say, I am a hell-deserving sinner, and left to myself, that's precisely what I should get. But my only hope is to forsake every vestige of my own goodness and to take refuge in receiving Christ alone by faith, through grace alone, as all of my hope and help for time and for eternity as the only Savior of sinners. May the Lord bring that word home to our own hearts. Let's stand for prayer. O oh Lord, our God in heaven, these are ancient people of whom we have no personal familiarity, place names that we've never been, history that is far removed from us. And yet, O oh Lord, it is the word of God and it comes to us just as surely as it came to Moab. And the word to them is the word to us Help us to receive it as such. Help us to come under it, O Lord. 
Help us to see that we are warned of the wrath to come. Help us to see mercy is being held forth. And, O Lord, help us to see the punishment of pride. Give us, O Lord, to come, adorned with humility, stooping low to come through the gospel door and to find, as Ruth did, shelter under the wing of the Almighty. We ask it in Jesus' name.